Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Anyways, what we've been doing this quarter is we've been looking at the questions that Jesus asked, um, because usually our posture, and it's a legitimate posture, is we have questions for God and for Jesus. Um, but you can actually learn a lot about someone when you look at the questions that they're asking of you. And these questions are relevant for anybody. They are, uh, if you, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, or you have, we're a place for people who are really convinced of the things of the Bible and the things of Christianity, people who aren't. Um, these questions challenge us all. So we're going to look at a particular question from Matthew 5, where Jesus is uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of this full-text sermon that we have from Jesus. I'm going to read these verses, uh, and then we'll talk about them. And the question uh, is um, verse 46, but I'm going to start in verse 43. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Here's the question. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet and welcome only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore aim to be perfect as your, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words tonight. These words are hard and they're heavy. Uh, and they challenge us more deeply than we want to be challenged. Um, it's hard to believe that the kind of change that you call for in our life is even possible. Um, but it is possible if you're with us, and it is possible if your Spirit uh, convinces us of your love for us. So we need your Holy Spirit to be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so tonight the question we're going to look at uh, is really important for at least three reasons. First of all, it's relevant to every day in our lives, right? Because it gets at this question of loving difficult people. So it's relevant to everyday life, right? We encounter those people every day. But that's not the only reason. It's also, it's actually the key to the hope for peace on a social and societal level, um, we, we, could, we could read this text through a much broader kind of corporate lens about our society and see that it actually has the answers for most of the things that are happening on a cultural level right now. Um, so that's the second reason. It's relevant for everyday life. It's relevant for our society. But thirdly, uh, one writer actually said this, with enemies, distinctive Christian life comes to its truest testing ground. That this, how you deal with your enemies, is maybe the place more than any other part of your life that, like, Christian faith, Christian identity, is tested or revealed. Uh, because this is what we think. This is, how you, this is how you're supposed to be able to tell people are Christians whether or not we follow Jesus or trust in Him. We think, like, you know, Christians don't drink, or at least don't drink a lot, right? That's one of the big things. Uh, Christians vote a certain way, depending on what kind of Christian you are. How you answer that is different, but Christians vote a certain way. Uh, Christians don't go to Burning Man. You all aware of this? Um, Christians uh, lie about their own sexual immorality. 
right? Um, Christians play Settlers of Catan on the weekends. Um, They post Bible verses on social media and definitely pictures of their Bible uh, and journal on Instagram. But more than anything else, the easiest way to publicly identify a Christian is their use of hashtag blessed, right? That's the mark. And uh, what Bruner is saying is actually really there's no more singular distinctive in the life of a Christian than how you treat your enemies. Um, That that really actually might be the litmus test more than anything else. And as long as we think that being a Christian is kind of keeping some kind of randomly chosen or socially chosen behavioral markers that are actually moderately easy to keep, and we think that's what distinguishes a Christian, then we're going to be lost. Uh, We'll be polite people. Uh, We'll probably drink a little bit less. Our parties will be lame. Uh, And none of us are going to want to be honest and say that the deep emotional and spiritual experience of knowing the love of the God who made us, the deep emotional and psychological and spiritual experience of having sure eternal hope, the thing that we thought we were promised... None of us want to be, ab- to be honest about its absence in our interior life. That that's not there. Right? We'll be moralish. Uh, we'll work. We'll be workaholics. And we'll just kind of follow an Americanized script of what a conservative religious person is supposed to look like. And if you're not interested in that, this is what we all have to get into this text. Uh, to, to actually explore what it means to be a Christian... This is what we all have to embrace. We have to embrace this. You have to be able to say this of yourself, that left to our natural disposition, we don't like God. And if you can't get there first, you can't get anywhere. Because that language, and we don't like it at first, the language is abrasive, that we're enemies of God. We don't want to think about it. Uh, We don't want to think poorly of ourselves. And most of us actually don't feel strong antipathy toward God. Maybe some of us feel some antipathy, But that kind of misunderstands the complexity of being an enemy because some enemies feel antipathy. uh, But the reality is, is actually if you feel some angst or antipathy towards someone, that actually means you're saying they're actually worthy of thinking and feeling about. And actually antipathy could be a step closer to God for some of us. We started to feel, feel strongly that we really don't like Him. Because really what our enmity to our Maker most often looks and feels like is indifference. I don't even care enough to have a thought about you. Elie Wiesel, the the Holocaust survivor who wrote so much about it, said the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. We've got to be able to save ourselves my life's disposition. My heart is really opposed to God, we're enemies. Because before any of what we're about to say tonight, none of it can make sense and none of it can actually be possible for you because it's only when you're a loved enemy can you love enemies. It is only when you're a loved enemy can you love enemies. And it's not just that you can be enabled to love your enemies, but you actually begin to see that the chief calling of a Christian is to love your enemy. It is not to try to behave better than other people. It is to love your enemy. Jesus closes the passage by saying, 
he describes this act of loving the enemy. And he closes by saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's saying, you know what perfect Christianity looks like? The main thing it looks like is loving your enemy. He doesn't say, so love your enemy or be perfect so that God will love you. He's actually saying we're meant to love one another the way he has loved us. He's saying because God is your father, live like a member of his household. We tell our girls sometimes, act like a wood. That's what verse 48 is saying. And what that looks like is dying. This is what it means to be perfect, to be mature, to be a Christian, to be God's child, and to live into the shape of that household. It is to die to self for the sake of the life and the flourishing and the benefit of our enemies. Now, who are our enemies? I'm not going to spend much time here because my guess is we can all answer that question really quickly and really easily. Um, Enemies are competitors uh, in life, in sports. Uh, Enemies are the irritants in our life. Enemies are the people who've let us down. Enemies are the people who've hurt us. Enemies are the people that oppose us. Enemies are the people that we disagree with. Enemies are the people that gossip about you. Enemies are the people that bother you. Enemies sometimes are actually, a lot of times, are maybe the people that need you, that mock you, that reject you. Enemies are the person that you are just in feeling antipathy for. The person that you actually have, you are just in disliking them and wanting bad things to happen to them. And and that really is what an enemy is, that you have justice in your dislike for them. Now here's the challenge of the question. This is where Jesus says, now if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet and welcome only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here's the way one translator wrote it. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anyone can do that. If you only say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill bad person can do that. Here's Jesus' point. There's nothing remarkable about loving people who are like you. There's nothing remarkable about loving people who are like you. It's not bad. Don't hear what he's not saying. It's not bad to do that. It's okay. It's good. He's confronting us with the fact that there's nothing remarkable, uh, remarkable, exceptional, helpful, or unique about doing that. Liking people who like you and liking people who are like you. Right? Those are our qualifiers for friendship, for affection, for attention, for the possibility of caring for somebody. Do they like us? And are they like us? If you love people who love you and welcome only people who are like you, what have you done? Well, really, all we've done is served ourselves then. And anybody and everybody can do that. His point is, terrible people do that. The worst kinds of people still do that. There's nothing remarkable or distinctly Christian about that kind of love. If you only associate with or appreciate or dignify, but more than that, just love your socioeconomic tribe, your personality tribe, your values tribe, your politics tribe, your social issues tribe, your religious tribe, your educational level tribe. If you've done that, you've done nothing difficult. You could be the worst kind of person in the world and still do that. But love that's shaped 
by Jesus and enabled by Jesus, it doesn't have a performance clause for the person to be loved. It doesn't have a bare requirement clause. It doesn't have a, well, at least they are kind of clause. This is the way one writer said it. Christian love takes calculations and distinctions out of the call to love. If you're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, a good person comes to Jesus and says, who am I supposed to love? And this is how Jesus answers the story. His answer, in summary, is the person in closest proximity to you. That's the, that's the summary of the Good Samaritan. The person that you walk by. Physical proximity is the only qualifier to the question of who should you love. The, the only qualifier that determines the candidate for your love. Are they nearby? Are they nearby physically? Are they nearby emotionally? Are they nearby relationally? And in the parallels of the Good Samaritan, the other detail is implicitly asked, what about my enemies? And that's why in the story, the person closest to him is his cultural and social and moral enemy. And he's saying, yeah, that person, even if they're your enemy. Maybe, in fact, especially if they're your enemy. So the qualification for who to love is not they're Christian or they're progressive, or they're conservative, or they're likable, or they're reasonable. Are they like you? Do they like you? It's not even, do they have the capacity to appreciate you? It's not until someone begins to love an enemy, that means inconvenient, costs you a lot, nets you no personal gain, takes your time and resources, love an enemy. An undeserving, unappreciating, justifiably hate-worthy enemy. Someone whom we would all say, yes, we agree with your antipathy towards them. It's only when we begin to love them that anything remarkable or anything distinctly Christ-like is happening in the way we relate to others. But here's the problem. That's not even the real challenge of the question. It actually gets much more difficult than that. The real challenge of the question, our standard operating procedure with offenders and with enemies is reciprocity. Right? You steal my sleep, you roommate, I'm going to passive-aggressively ignore you. Right? You flirt with the person that I want to flirt with, I'm going to destroy your reputation. You win where I wanted to, I hate you. You reject me, I reject you. You vote that way, you believe in that cause, I'm going to despise and ridicule you and your kind behind your back. Reciprocity, right? That's our tool for dealing with enemies. We know who our enemies are. But the word enemy is not the troubling word in this passage. It's a little bit troubling. The much more troubling word in this passage is love. Because Jesus doesn't say, make peace with. He doesn't say, cut toxic people out of your life so that they don't frustrate you and you don't frustrate them. He doesn't say... Tone down your retaliation. He doesn't say be moderate and measured in your analysis and lenient in your reciprocity. That's not what he says. He says love. But here's what we can do because here's what we're pretty good at. We can actually be good at being civil toward our enemies. We can be insincerely helpful towards our enemies. Right? That's, I don't really care about you, but I love how well I can think of myself because I helped you one time. Right? Our resumes are filled with a lot of places where we're insincerely helpful. Right? We didn't care about the cause, but we needed stuff on our resume. Right? We need to pump up our sense of self and other people's sense of self. Insincerely helpful. We can be polite to people that we're not like and that we don't like and who don't like us. We can be polite. Anybody can do that. 
But the reality is there's two us's. There's two me's. There's the me that can actually act moral and polite and Christian-y on the outside and, and, and pull off being cordial and friendly to someone I don't like. And then there's the me on the inside that's like, we could never be friends. I could never inconvenience myself in a deep way in order to help you, especially over a long period of time. But props to me for being nice, and I bet Jesus is proud. There's the outside us that's good about being polite. There's the inside us that is completely insincere, but proud. That's not love. That's just trying to do enough to feel better about yourself. What actually means it's still about you. So what is love? Jesus' whole life is showing us what love is. Love is having other-centered center of being. Love is having an other-centered center of being. That at your core, there's not self-concerned. There's not constantly calculating personal benefit, but love is actually dying to self for another. That's what love is. It's setting aside self-interest for others' interests and well-being. It looks like investing your desire for delight into their flourishing and delight, saying, no, what I am about is about someone other than myself now. That actually means you think, I am made and I live for their flourishing and their delight. Here's the summary of Jesus' picture of love from Philippians 2. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, saying, He's our model, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's what love feels like. This is, how you, this is how you know that the challenge to love like Jesus is actually hitting you and you're wrestling with it. It feels like this is what's beginning to happen inside of you. You're like, I think this is maybe what the kind of love God calls us to is when you think that means all of my fundamental allegiances in my heart and all of my fundamental goals for my life have to be questioned. And it means that I might have to be a totally different kind of person. Not someone that simply adds some moral behavior and deletes some bad behavior. It means I'd have to be a different kind of person whose every motive is fundamentally changed from what it's been up to this point. When you feel like, I can't afford to do that, you're finally wrestling with what Jesus is saying. You finally stumbled on what he means when he says love. Because what it means is, all the spheres of your life are no longer about you. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, how do you do schoolwork not for yourself? Right? The main reason school is killing you is not because of the workload. It's actually not because of how much work you're doing. It's actually because of why you're doing it. Because it's, it's been all about you up to this point. It was supposed to be about loving God and loving others. Schoolwork and success are not about worth. They're not a place to build a sense of self or control or identity. Rather, what work was supposed to be is that actually you can learn a lot about work by watching a two-year-old draw something for their parents. Because what a two-year-old does when they draw something for their parents is they work really hard to do the best that they can so they can show dad their best work. And it's simply sharing delight with their father. 
They aim for excellence in their work so they can say, see, Dad, look what I made for you. And then there's mutual delight. They weren't asking to be loved. They weren't asking for self-worth. They were just enjoying their dad. That's what work was supposed to be. And doing it because you can also produce something that helps others. Work was supposed to be helping others. Your education is so that you can serve the world. But as long as you use it to build your own sense of self-worth, you're going to hate it because it can't do that. Here's how you know that you're beginning to actually encounter work as your love for God and love for neighbors. You can rest from it. And you don't doubt yourself and your worth when you rest from it. You actually enjoy satisfaction. I worked hard and I'm taken off. It doesn't pull you away from friendship and community, but rather it nourishes friendship and community. Your identity and sense of self is not threatened by mediocrity, let alone failure. Social life. Instead of work life, what about social life? What does it mean that social life is not about you? That's hard to imagine. This is the way one of my friends, this is the way I know, one of the key ways I know my best friend David Jones loves me. He loves my children. And he loves them just because they're my children. The way you love a parent, the chief way, is to love their kids. It means social life is about loving the person closest to you, enemy or not, friend or foe. And you don't love them because they're likable or because they're like you, but because they're God's. Because he made them in his image. Social life is about loving them for their well-being. Because they need to be delighted in. Simply because they're there. There's no calculation in who and how much to care about people. It's simply the people in front of you, friend or foe. Here's how you know you're beginning to love people this way. is because you always seek reconciliation when relationships break. You can actually be friends with and care about people that you have nothing in common with except for being a person. You can even be friends with people that have a diametrically opposed way of seeing life. You see them as inherently valuable and beautiful and you long for them to experience joy. Then all of a sudden you're entering into social life for a totally different reason. For them. How about dating, marriage, romance, right? Doing it for ourselves is... It's about finding someone who can make me happy. They can't do that. Every marriage, every romance hits the moment where you realize that. And if you're still in it for them making you happy, you won't be in it very long. But rather, what that is, is finding a best friend to go on the adventure of life of loving other people with. And so what that means is, you don't look and ask, can they make me happy? You look and ask, do I want to be friends with them while they love other people? Could they be my partner in that task? And you actually, what you enjoy about them is their love for others, instead of how much they can make you happy. Enemies. It looks like laying down a right for retaliation when they demand or take something from them, uh, from you, you actually give them more. When evil threatens them, you actually fight the evil that threatens them. This is the thing about loving our enemies. Here, this is the really big thing. It's the only thing that can fix stuff. It's the only thing that can bring peace on a social level and on a personal level. On a personal relational, when we meet hostility, when we meet opposition, when we meet inconvenience, when we meet hurt with reciprocity. Right? It comes into our life, a person hurts us, defrauds us in some way. 
when we meet that hurt with reciprocity, we actually increase the hurt in the world. Let's be really reductionistic. If someone hurts you, they brought one hurt unit into the world. Right? And your response is, well, I need to bring another hurt unit into the world. Now there are two hurt units. Evil is one. Every time reciprocity is our response. And then, of course, they're probably going to come back. There's probably going to be a third and possibly a fourth. We're going to start accumulating hurt units really quickly. The only way to diminish evil and hurt in the world is to absorb it. And not actually simply to absorb it, but to respond with kindness. Because that not only takes away one less hurt unit, it adds a unit of beauty. Hurt, someone sends a hurt unit your way, and you send them a a unit of beauty back. You absorb the hurt, and now what happens in that situation is that unit of beauty begins to produce beauty in them. So instead of having two and three and four and five and six hurt units, beauty is birthed and growing. This is what Paul means in Romans 12. He says, don't be overcome by evil. Don't let it keep piling up. Overcome evil with good. Meet hurt with the beauty of love. If you've ever met or seen someone meet hostility with kindness, it's the only thing that actually puts evil and hurt to death, that actually can take it out of the world. Because here's our big problem for us on a social level and on a personal level, is we think the solution to evil is power reallocation. It's a very worldly way of thinking. It is not a Christian or biblical or Jesus way of thinking. Get power for ourselves from the hurtful people, This is what happens when you want to hurt a friend because of what they did to you. That's what you're doing. You had the power to hurt me. I'm going to get some power. I'm going to take, probably, hopefully take some from you and then hurt you. The idea is if you get enough power and use it the right way, you'll win. They can't hurt you anymore, and you've justly made them feel hurt as well. But here's the problem with thinking the key is power. Let's reallocate power. Power is incredibly limited and ultimately insufficient for making real change. Power doesn't change people, it just restrains people by threatening them. It's of some use to restrain evil. That's actually fine. Using it simply for restraint is fine. But can it change the broken thing in us that has caused us to hurt others? No. It can't change us on a fundamental level in our hearts. It can't change the bent in us that made us enemies in the first place. We're enemies. This is why we're enemies. Is because my favorite thing is me and your favorite thing is you. Now we've learned how to be polite. but And for a while we can even get our interests to align in a friendship, in a relationship, in a marriage. But eventually we're going to find out that I have a fundamental allegiance to me and you have a fundamental allegiance to you. And that all along... We've been enemies. We've just found a way to peacefully coexist until eventually something exposes us. All of us have a root fundamental allegiance to self. Until that changes, all we can do is restrain each other. Uh, Power can restrain, but it can't change. So where do we begin to find the possibility of living differently? There are two verses woven throughout this 
that provide the means that we can be transformed into people who can love their enemies. And you heard it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now what these verses are, they're not a threat. They're not a conditionality on God's love. It's not a performance clause for God's love. That would betray the entire sentiment of what Jesus is saying. The language is important. It says, so that you may become sons of your Father. It's assuming He's your Father. When it says become, it's so that you begin to live what your family looks like. It means actually begin to act like what you are. Right? Like we tell the girls, act like a wood. It doesn't mean become in the sense of status, achieve a new status. It assumes that you're children of the Heavenly Father, your status in God's family is sure. It means become in terms of character. He's your Heavenly Father. It's good to want to be like your dad. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The word there for perfect is telos. It actually means mature. Be who you are supposed to be. It doesn't make the status as God's child contingent. Be perfect and God maybe will love you. It assumes status as God's child to motivate us. So what is perfect, mature love? This is what Jesus is saying here. And it's what Jesus displays in his life and shows us on the cross. The kind of love he's calling us to is love for our enemies. It is laying down your life for people you are just and not liking. It's what Jesus did for us. It's the only thing that actually can take evil and hurt out of the world. Your plan for self-preservation, self-protection, self-aggrandizing, and self-validation can make you friendly and successful. But it has no power to actually counter what is wrong with the world. Namely, I love me and you love you. Jesus loved us when we were enemies. If you can grieve your antipathy towards God and then hear the good news that He loved you in spite of that, at great cost to Himself, your heart begins to change. We sent hurt His way. He absorbed it and sent beauty our way in response. And that begins to grow beauty in you in the capacity to love in you. I'll close with this story I read this afternoon. You can go, you should go Google and see the picture. There's an iconic picture about uh, a woman named Keisha Thomas. In 1996, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, 17 Ku Klux Klan men held a rally in downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, in response to that rally, protesters came. Several hundred protesters came and set up across the street. And at one point during that rally, uh, a man... A white man, a Klansman wearing a Confederate flag shirt, wearing Nazi tattoos on his arms, with his uh, sleeves cut off, Confederate tattoos, he made his way to the other protesters. So he's not with the Klansmen anymore. And he's literally covered in the signs of his hate for them. And at that point, as it was reported, you can read about this, someone shouts, kill the Nazi, and the protesters who are protesting the Klansmen just descend upon him and start beating him. And an 18-year-old black woman named Keisha Thomas took a different approach. When the beating started, you should go, the picture is amazing. Uh, she jumps on top of him on the ground, and she put her body 
between the crowd and the man that hated her. She put her body between her own friends and the man that hated her. This is what she said. I know what it's like to be hurt. And for the most part, for the most part people who hurt, they come from hurt, and it's a cycle. The only way to stop it is to absorb it and dole out beauty and love in response. The photographer that took the picture said this, she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who would not have done the same for her. His next, what he says next is, who does that? His last quote, she didn't think about herself, she just did the right thing. You know why she did it? She stopped thinking about herself. She stopped the cycle, not by seeking power, but giving up power. She stopped the cycle, not by bringing hurt, but by being hurt. She stopped the cycle, not by seeking self, but forgetting self. And not for a nice person, but for a nasty person. Here's the thing about that kind of love. You can't show it unless you've been shown it. You can't give it unless you've received it. Grace begets grace. So do you know that in Jesus, God has done for you what He calls you to do? All you've got to do is you've got to step back and have a moment of honesty like Jess was talking about. God, I've always, always, always been about me. I'm afraid of not being about me. I don't know how to be any other way. Is there mercy? And there is. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. I've been your enemy, some of us explicitly, all of us implicitly. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. What do I owe? Nothing. Who should I be now? God is saying, be my child. What does that mean? Here's what he's telling you. Go and try to love the way I've loved you. It'll be the hardest but richest thing you do. The world will understand it. It's going to feel like death. and It'll seem impossible. But remember, Jesus has done the same for you. This can change everything. It's the only thing that can change everything. Let's pray.